Hi, this is Monica Lopez. Before we get to our podcast, I want to let you know that Making Contact is supported mostly by our listeners. We're a nonprofit shop with a small yet mighty team. In other words, a little goes a long way for us, and a little more goes a lot longer. So if you can, please go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a tax-deductible donation. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. These are civil liberties. These are violation of human rights. These are violation of constitutional norms. That's what happens at a theater of war. All of those things go aside, and that's the enemy who is trying to smuggle drugs, and we're going to do everything that we can to keep him from coming, even to the point of killing him without repercussion. Uh, Migrants lose their lives at, at a very high rate trying to cross into the United States, and nobody is culpable. If you're in a theater of war, soldiers are allowed to kill. In most recent decades, U.S. immigration policies have aggressively targeted immigrants, spawning a network of indefinite detention centers that offer harsh conditions of confinement, deliberately separating families, and deny detainees adequate medical and legal counsel. On today's program, John Carlos Frey, author of Sand and Blood, America's Stealth War on the Mexico Border, explores increased militarization at the border, U.S. deterrent strategy, and the profitable business of fear. I'm Anita Johnson, your host this week on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Now here's John Carlos Frey speaking at a benefit for KPFA Radio, recorded in Berkeley, California. This is a difficult topic to talk about. It enrages people. It puts people on one side of the fence or the other. That pun is intended. Politicians grandstand on the issue of immigration. They've made their careers from it. The migrants themselves that are the the source of border walls and border security and border agents rarely have a voice, rarely get to speak up to talk about why they're coming and what they've endured and who they are. Uh, I am a a Mexican immigrant. I was born in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, My parents... At the time, my father was a U.S. citizen, and my mother was a legal U.S. resident, which automatically made me a U.S. citizen. If you're born of U.S. citizen parents, just one, you are automatically a U.S. citizen, regardless of what country you're born in. So from birth, I had the rights and privileges of U.S. US citizenship. My neighbors, others born in Mexico and in Latin America, didn't have that advantage of birth. They had to endure what many Latin American countries continue to endure today. High crime, poverty, lack of an infrastructure or educational system, bad hospitals, corrupt governments, desperation, little recourse. That's what we see today. Those are some of the sending factors of migration. I've been a journalist an independent journalist for uh, about 15 years now, and and the majority of what I report on is the U.S.-Mexico border and migrant strife. Um, When I was a young boy, I grew up within, I would say, the U.S.-Mexico border. And at the time that I was a kid, there was no fence. And it was in, in Southern California, in San Diego, and it was the number one route for migrants to cross. Because the, the area is temperate, it's easy, the city of San Diego is close by, L.A. is close enough, and migrants would cross there, come to the San Joaquin Valley to work, or disappear into the cities to find a job, 
and they didn't have to cross a desert. Within a few feet, you were in the United States, and you could disappear. And that was the known route. Um, as a kid, I would see migrants everywhere. They would run through my family backyard, chased by U.S. Border Patrol agents, and sometimes the U.S. Border Patrol helicopter, if it was hovering above, would shine its flashlight in, in our backyard and sometimes into my bedroom window, lighting it all up. As a kid, me and the neighborhood kids used to go out into the local fields. It was a pretty rural area, and we used to play migrant. We used to run around pretending that we were immigrants, and we would stir up the dirt so that we could get the attention of the helicopter hovering above us, and it would shine its spotlight on us, and then we would ditch into our homes. I thought everybody grew up that way. I thought that migration, cat and mouse, people chasing other people, people running for their lives, this is what I saw on a regular basis, and it wasn't a big issue. The migrants that I met, mostly men, mostly young men, coming to work to put a little bit of extra money and food on the table as their families stayed back in Mexico. The majority of the migrants at the time were from Mexico. I feel when I talk about this time in my life that that was an innocent time. Uh, we don't have that kind of migration anymore. Most of the people that were coming were coming for the crops to harvest. We would allow them in, we would have the harvest for a few months, and they would go back home to their families. There was an ebb and flow. Uh, as, as we all may know, in the 90s, we started to build border walls, and what we have today is a president who's hell-bent on putting a, a border wall from California all the way to Texas. In 2007, I was asked by a television producer, since I had been reporting about the border for a little while and had made a couple of documentaries, if I was interested in making a documentary about what migrants go through. And I said, well, the only way you're going to do that is, is not by interviewing them necessarily, is that you've got to go on the journey yourself. We have to go on the journey with them. And he said, well, let's do it. And this was for a, a television program that had a documentary series. Um, the series was on Al Gore's channel, and the show was called Vanguard, a documentary series. And I got approval to go to Mexico and find a migrant group, find a coyote, tell them who I was, that I was a journalist and interested in documenting their journey. And it took me about a month to get through all of it. I had to have face-to-face -face meetings with, with drug smugglers, human smugglers, coyotes. There was a very large organized criminal element in a small town in Arizona called Altar. It's about 70 miles south of the U.S.-Mexico border. But I was able to make enough connections, and they were going to allow me to take my cameras and to follow along with a migrant group, cross from Mexico, illegally cross into the United States, and walk through the Arizona desert for a period of time along the migrant route. Um, and that changed my life. That is why I became dedicated to telling these kinds of stories, because yes, of course the journey is harrowing and dangerous and difficult, but what I came to understand from that experience was this was a route that was being offered by the U.S. government. We had built fences and barriers in front of our large cities at the border. San Diego had been fortified. El Paso had been fortified. Nogales, McAllen, Brownsville, all had large fences and large security forces in front of them, so migrants weren't crossing there anymore like they were when I was a kid they were now being funneled through the deserts. And the deserts were open. 
and this is where they were allowed to cross, by the hundreds of thousands. In 1994, the U.S. government enacted a policy called Prevention Through Deterrence, and in the document, it states that people will be dehydrated. People may lose their life. People will be hungry, will be lost, will be disoriented. The policy that we have today was enacted in 1994 to allow migration routes to be funneled through our most treacherous parts of the American Southwest. I went on that journey. That's where people cross today, and those are the stories that we hear today, and it's all because of U.S. policy. That's what the book is about. That's what I started to report about, and I was approached to see if I wanted to put some of these stories together in a comprehensive way so we could sort of start taking a look at how we got where we are today. I don't know if you've been listening to or reading the news in the last couple of days, but we've gotten all the way to migrant children now being abused. They're not being cared for. This is all policy. We have a policy in the United States today, this deterrence policy, which basically says, let's make the journey as difficult as possible for immigrants who are trying to get into the country illegally. Let's force them through the deserts or the mountains. If we capture them and incarcerate them, let's make their time in our prison system, in our immigrant detention facilities, as difficult and as harrowing as possible, on purpose. Let's rough them up, let's shake them up, let's make them remember who we are so that they'll never attempt it again. It's a deterrent strategy that is on paper and it's completely sanctified by our government. It doesn't work. All it does is abuse humanity. Many people die, many people are traumatized, and people still keep coming. So I decided, uh, along with a lot of help, to actually put policy enacted by presidents before Trump, governments before Trump, to put down personal stories, and to put down the lineage of how we got to where we are. Um, I want to read you an excerpt of the book, and we also have an opportunity to talk about this because this topic is current and changing probably as I'm standing here. As I write, I'm watching history unfold at the U.S.-Mexico border as I've never seen it before. Trump has taken on the mantle of border security more aggressively and less thoughtfully than any president before him, and it's clear that past administrations have laid an ample number of tools at his feet to allow him to create great chaos and destruction. I've been reporting out the border for about 15 years. Politicians' xenophobic rhetoric used to be somewhat nuanced, but no longer. That we could achieve comprehensive immigration reform or a sober approach to migration and all of its complexities now seems impossible. It's worse than ever before, and migrants are suffering needlessly. But the groundwork was laid before Trump became president. Year after year, the U.S.-Mexico border has become increasingly militarized with far too little public acknowledgement. The Border Patrol's policing force keeps growing, and no one is asking if the zeal to seal the border is having a positive or negative effect. Is U.S. border policy effective at keeping migrants in their home countries? Shouldn't that be the metric by which we measure it? If it is, border policy has failed. Defense contractors have had a field day, descending like vultures, picking up the scraps that Congress throws at them with every new administration, 
and yet too many of their supposedly innovative approaches have backfired. Migrants have died by the thousands, and still people keep coming. Now we've handed this massive infrastructure over to Trump with his promise that he will do more of the same. And the effects, as we're coming to realize, will be even more devastating. If you live along the border where nearly 8 million Americans have their homes, you know that it's different than any other part of the United States. The Spanish language and Mexican culture are everywhere. It's difficult to differentiate the U.S. and Mexican traditions. The two have melded. In places along the U.S. side of the border, it's difficult to even distinguish which side of the border you're on. It can feel like you're in Mexico because the Latino influence is so strong. After all, it was Mexico over 150 years ago. But that's not all that makes up this place. That's not what makes it so unique. It can also seem like a war zone. Border patrol agents in trucks, Humvees, Jeeps, and helicopters are part of the landscape. You can see arrests of migrants on any given day, even on a busy road. There are checkpoints on every major highway heading north from Mexico, and everyone has to stop at each one of the checkpoints. If you get close to Mexico itself, there are walls, fencing, barriers, already existing along 700 miles of the border. In many port towns like San Diego, El Paso, Nogales, Laredo, and Brownsville, the wall is a constant backdrop. In some, place, in some places, the wall is formidable. In other places, it just scars the landscape. The closer you get to the border, the more militarized it becomes. Camera arrays sit atop walls, customs agents, border agents, ICE agents, and everywhere, they're there to stop migrants. The effects of militarization don't end at the border. The creation of ICE has stretched the immigration police presence into all areas of the interior of the United States. ICE conducts raids in workplaces, outside of courthouses, dressed undercover, and driving unmarked vehicles. It is a clandestine police force looking for immigrants who may have committed crimes or overstayed their visas. The hunt for immigrants is now everywhere. In the past 15 years, prisons have sprung up in every single state to house all the immigrants that needed to be processed. It has become a big business. 75% of all the detention facilities in the United States are privately run. The United States has become the largest jailer of immigrants in the world, most of whom who have committed no criminal offense, but possibly have maybe overstayed their visa. I think that that the reason I report on the border and, and the reason that we worked on getting this book out is because there's so much misinformation. The President of the United States can run his campaign on the fact that Mexicans are rapists or that immigrants are invaders or terrorists and people will listen and the press doesn't question him. Most of the people that I have met on my journey through Latin America and along the border are none of those things. Um, I always try to imagine what it would take for me to migrate. I don't have a big mansion and I don't have a, a big cushy life, but I live very comfortably in the United States. I live in Los Angeles. And in order for me to have all of those pieces of my life fall apart and go away would be catastrophic. That's what it would take for me to be forced to migrate. 
I would have to lose my home and my job and probably any family member that could help me financially. I'd probably have to lose all of my support system that I may have, friends, relatives. I would have to have no food in the refrigerator, my bank accounts drained. I might even have to have some sort of external threat. Maybe somebody's threatening me with my life and I'm having to hide out. I would have to have zero recourse. I would have to have zero choice. I would have to have no options left. And the very last resort I would choose would be to pack up whatever I had left and move to a foreign country where I don't understand the customs, where I'm not welcome, where I'd have to enter illegally, and I'd have to take whatever job was offered. That is migration. That is what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. Those are the people that are coming. They have already made the decision when they're on that journey. They have already been in their homes in Central America and in Mexico and have weighed all of these options. And all of those calamities that I listed have already happened to them. So that by the time they are on their journey, they've made the decision to come. So if we put a border guard or a border fence or make it tougher or jail them and we rough them up, it doesn't matter because they've already made the decision to come and they've already made the decision to endure because there's no other place to go. Border security, militarization, forcing people into inhumane conditions and circumstances doesn't threaten migrants. It doesn't keep them from coming. We have a lot of evidence. We're seeing a spike at the border right now and we have a president who wants to build a border wall. It doesn't work. You're listening to award-winning journalist John Carlos Frey discuss his book, Sand and Blood, America's Stealth War on the Mexico Border, on Making Contact. This show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to John Carlos Frey discussing America's war against immigrants. As a, as a reporter, I made sure that the book has data and fact and dry and boring policy and who voted on it and why and, um, you know, who, who we can point our finger at and not vote for ever again kind of a thing. But the thing that has moved me the most was the stories that I came across and people that I met on my journeys in Latin America. I, I remember once, very green as a, as a journalist, meeting a group of three migrant women a grandmother, a mother, and her daughter. And they were all at what was basically a humanitarian camp before they were going to hop the fence in Nogales, Mexico, and going to jump into Nogales, Arizona. And they were going to walk on foot into the United States and look for work. And three women by themselves, the youngest, the daughter, I think, must have been 14, 15, and the grandmother, I think, was probably in her 50s or 60s. And I knew at the time... Uh, as a journalist, that women crossing by themselves was a very, very dangerous venture. Women could be raped. Uh, women are physically more susceptible to, to heat stress. The desert at the time, I think it was August, was, I think it was about 110 that day. And I thought that I was going to impart all of, all of my journalistic wisdom and tell these women that they probably should think twice about what they were about to attempt. So I went up to them and I said, 
uh, I asked them if they were going to plan on crossing the border by themselves, and they said, yes, the mother is the one who spoke to me. And I said, well, you know, it's very dangerous. And I said, there are all kinds of stories about, about women who are sexually assaulted on the journey, and men have their way with them. And I said, don't you think it would be wise of you to, to maybe match yourself up with a group or find an, a man to sort of take you on the journey? And she was deeply offended by the fact that I suggested that she should go with men, um, but didn't say anything. She was stoic and graceful and, and was sort of nodding. And I said, it's very dangerous. Do you have enough water? Do you think that you're going to make it? Do you know where you're going? I started asking them all of these questions to make sure, really out of concern, to make sure that they were going to be safe. And finally, she put her hand up. And in about five minutes, she schooled me in a way that uh, changed my perspective about migration. She said that my husband beat me back home and sexually molested my daughter. I don't want men to be on the group with us, and I don't want men to be guiding us across the border. She said, I have no life in Mexico because my daughter is being threatened to join gangs. Every day that she walks home from school, she's being accosted by gang members and being threatened that if she doesn't join the gangs, that they're going to rape her. And if she still doesn't want to join, they're going to beat her up. And if she still doesn't want to join, they're going to kill her friends or maybe even her. And they started following her daughter home from school every single day. And she said, my mother has cancer and we don't have enough money for treatment. And she has breast cancer, and it's in its early stages, but we don't have money for treatment. And I know that she could be cured if we came to the United States and we found jobs and we were able to put enough money away. She said, please don't tell me what you think is going to happen to me. What's happened to me already is worse than what you're telling me. I've already made the decision. Nothing you tell me is going to scare me, and nothing you tell me is going to change my mind. The decision to migrate, as I, as I said previously, had already been made well before they got to that place. And there wasn't a deterrent. There wasn't a summer day that was 110 degrees. There wasn't the fact that women got raped or the desert was long and hard to walk through or she wouldn't find a job. She was determined. She was without options. She was desperate. And she had no other recourse. If she was going to save the only family unit that she had left was her daughter and her mother. This was the avenue, the route, the way that she had chosen. And she said, I spent two years making this decision. I tried everything while I was at home. I tried to find jobs. I tried to find help. I tried to get my husband arrested. I tried to get my daughter safe from the gangs. She couldn't do any of it. So she came here. I've never approached anybody who is in the attempt of migrating ever again with my wisdom. It's an interesting thing that we do culturally. I believe here in the United States, we don't have a life that has no options. We have a lot to fall back on. We have a lot of resource. And for me, I'm not even aware that I do. I live a life of privilege. It's easy for me to impart my, my sort of U.S. citizen customs thought process onto somebody who I think is making a bad choice. 
I can't see migration from the eyes of privilege. I have to see migration from the eyes of somebody who's desperate. And I think that's the piece that doesn't seem to be happening in our government. We think that they're marauders and invaders and that they're coming here to take and they're coming here to rob. And we don't really consider the fact that they're coming here because they have no choice. I'm sure it's no surprise to anybody sitting here that we have meddled in foreign countries in a way that has disrupted stability. We funded and helped resistance in El Salvador during the Reagan administration and caused civil unrest and caused 70,000 migrants to flee to the United States seeking asylum. You spoke about Honduras, which is a destabilized, corrupt government that the U.S. has, has a hand in. We have the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which allows us to trade freely with Central America, not fairly, but freely. We can take goods and services from Central America and not pay a fair price, keeping poverty at its height. Walmart is one of the largest employers in Central America and Mexico. It's a textile mill for Walmart. If, uh, if you've ever bought a shirt at Walmart, the sleeves were probably sewn on that shirt in Honduras. Women sit at their sewing machines for 10 to 12 hours a day and make about $4. Uh, that's U.S. equivalent. That's what $4 would buy in Honduras. And Walmart has bought all the textile mills up in the region in Honduras so that there is no competition. That's all part of free trade. So if you're poor, if there's no recourse, if your government is corrupt and we have a hand in it, we may actually be exacerbating the problem. Uh, we don't necessarily, especially during the Trump administration, provide much humanitarian assistance and aid to the countries where people are coming from to help stabilize. We have a capitalistic society. We go to these foreign countries. We rape, we pillage, we take, and the people are left with very little. And so they come here. If you go through the San Joaquin Valley from east of here all the way down to Bakersfield, it is estimated that 90% of the labor force is undocumented. There are an estimated 2 million farm workers harvesting the crops that grow in the San Joaquin Valley. Most of those individuals come from Mexico and Central America for work. In many cases, labor contractors go to places in Latin America and say, I can get you a job. The growers, the agricultural business in California, doesn't hire those individuals directly they hire the labor contractor. So the labor contractor is a middleman who can find the workers, get them somehow to the United States, and the hands of the agricultural industry is clean because they don't have a direct tie to the labor force. We also have not enacted laws lately that are punitive against industries that hire undocumented workers. It's, it's perceived that Donald Trump in some of his hotels also hires undocumented labor and migrant labor. Uh, the draw for labor in the United States is huge. You know, I've always, I've always argued if you don't want to build a border wall and if you don't want to add more border security, go after all the employers. Dry up all of the jobs that are being offered to people coming across the border and you won't need a barrier. Government never does that because the agricultural lobby or the hospitality lobby, or whoever it is, says, please don't take our laborers away. We need them. We need the workers. And as I said before, uh, the journey and the path that we give them is this maze of deserts and mountains. If you can get here, if you can find a way across that border, chances are pretty good that you're going to find a job. 
chances are pretty good that you're going to be okay. And that's pretty much on purpose. We don't go for the most part. I guess ICE does do raid at companies, not nearly enough to the effect of causing people to, to stay in the shadows. Just very quickly about Central Americans. We see that today 60% of the people coming to the United States-Mexico border are women and children. They are not labor force. Women and children do not migrate for work. They are coming because their homes are on fire and they've got no place to go. Children don't come for work. They're coming because they can't be fed in their home countries. So when we start to see children at the U.S.-Mexico border, there is a serious problem that has absolutely nothing to do with labor. You've been listening to John Carlos Frey, the author of San and Blood, America's Stealth War on the Mexico Border, on Making Contact. He was speaking at St. John's Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California. Special thanks to Mr. Frey and KPFA Radio for allowing us to broadcast this recording. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Rutman, Producers Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, and Salima Himarani. Associate Producer is Aisha Chowdhury, Audience Engagement and Web Coordinator Dylan Hoyer. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.